Chapter 10 of Colonel Thorndyke's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Bulka. Colonel Thorndyke's Secret by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 10 The funeral of Squire Thorndyke and Mr. Bastow was over, and all agreed they had never seen a more affecting spectacle than that at the churchyard when the two coffins were brought in. The distance was short, and the tenants had requested leave to carry the squire's beer while that of Mr. Bastow was borne by the villagers who had known and loved him. Behind followed all the magistrates and a great number of the gentry from miles around. The church was crowded by every man, woman, and child in the village, and the women, as well as many of the men, wept unrestrainedly as the coffins passed by. Besides these, a large number of people from Reigate and the surrounding villages were present, attracted rather by the crime that had caused the death than by the loss of the squire himself. The church was crowded, and it was with difficulty that Mr. Gregg read the service. The squire was laid by the side of his father, Mr. Bastow in the spot where many of his predecessors had slept before him. Mark had been greatly affected, not only by his own loss, but by the sight of the general grief among those for whom the squire had done so much. Even Mr. Prendergast, who had taken part in many such functions over departed clients, was much moved by the scene. I have been at many funerals, he said to Mark as they walked back to the hall, but I have never been at one that so affected me. No monument ever raised, sir, did such credit to him who was laid beneath it, as the tears of those simple villagers. Mark did not reply. His heart was altogether too full to speak. As they entered the house, he said, the ladies will have their lunch upstairs, Mr. Prendergast. We may as well have ours at once, and then you can call them down if there is any business to be done. That will not take long, the lawyer said. I have brought down the wills of both your uncle the colonel and your father, and I think that it would be as well for me to read them both. That of your father is a very short and simple document extending, indeed, over only a few lines. Your uncle's is longer and more complicated, but as you are well aware of the gist of it, it will take us but a short time to get through it. Mark took his meal in a perfunctory manner. For himself, he would have eaten nothing, but he made an effort to do so in order to keep his guest company. When it was over, he said, we may as well go into the library at once, and I will send up for the ladies. 
it is as well to lose no time for i know that you want to catch the afternoon coach up to town mrs cunningham and millicent joined them in a minute or two the girl looking very pale in her deep mourning i am about mr prendergast said quietly to read the wills of colonel thorndyke and mr john thorndyke and i will ask you if there is any phrase that you do not understand to stop me and i will explain to you its purport the three persons present were acquainted with the main provisions of the colonel's will it began by stating that being determined that his daughter millicent conyers thorndyke should not be married for her money he hereby bequeathed to his brother john thorndyke his estate in the parish of crowswood to be held by him until his daughter millicent came to the age of twenty-one or was married if that marriage did not take place until she was over the age of twenty-one so long was it to continue in john thorndyke's possession save and accept that she was on attaining the age of twenty-one to receive from it an income of two hundred fifty pounds a year for her private use and disposal to jane cunningham the widow of the late captain charles cunningham of the tenth madras native infantry should she remain with my daughter until the marriage of the latter i bequeath an annuity of one hundred fifty pounds per annum chargeable on the estate and to commence at my daughter's marriage all of my other property in monies investments jewels and chattels of all sorts is to be divided in equal portions between my daughter millicent conyers thorndyke and my nephew mark thorndyke should however my daughter die before marriage i bequeath the said estate in the parish of crowswood to my brother john thorndyke for his life and after him to his son mark and to the latter the whole of my other property of all kinds this to take effect on the death of my daughter should my brother predecease the marriage or coming of age of my daughter she is at once to come into possession of the said estate of crowswood in which case my nephew mark and mr james prendergast of the firm of hopwood and prendergast my solicitors are to act as her trustees and mrs jane cunningham and the said james prendergast as her guardians all this was of course expressed in the usual legal language but the purport was clear to those previously acquainted with its bearing the only item that was new to them being the legacy to mrs cunningham john thorndyke's testament was a short one he left all his property to his son mark with the exception of a hundred pounds to his niece to buy a mourning ring or brooch or other ornament in memory of him and fifty pounds to mrs cunningham for a similar purpose 
as a token of his great esteem for her character, and two hundred pounds to Ramu for his faithful services to his brother and himself. When the lawyer had folded up the wills, Millicent said, On my part, I have to say that I absolutely renounce the legacy of the estate in favor of my cousin Mark, who has always believed that it would be his. And I as absolutely refuse to accept the sacrifice, Mark said. My dear young lady, Mr. Prendergast said quietly, at present, at any rate, you have no power whatever to take any action in a matter. You are, in the eye of the law, an infant, and until you come of age you have no power to execute any legal document whatever. Therefore, you must perforce remain mistress of the estate until you attain the age of twenty-one. Many things may happen before that time. For example, you might marry, and in that case your husband would have a voice in the matter. You might die, in which case Mr. Mark Thorndyke would, without any effort on your part, come into possession of the estate. But, at any rate, until you reach the age of twenty-one, your trustees will collect the rents of the estate on your behalf, and will hold the monies in trust for you, making, of course, such payments for your support and maintenance as are fit and proper for your condition. The tears came into Millicent's eyes as she resumed the seat from which she had risen, and she did not utter another word until Mr. Prendergast rose to leave. "'I shall doubtless learn your wishes as to the future, Miss Thorndyke, from your cousin,' he said. "'I hope that you will not cherish any malice against me, and that, when you think it over, you will come to the conclusion that second thoughts are sometimes the wisest, and also that you should have some consideration for your father's wishes in a matter of this kind. He worked hard and risked his life to build up the fortune that he has left. He evidently thought greatly of your welfare, and was, above all things, anxious to ensure your happiness. I am sure that on thinking it over, you will see that you should not thwart his wishes. My dear boy, he said to Mark, as they stood on the doorstep, waiting for the carriage to come round, the best plan by far in this business would be for the interests of your cousin and yourself to be identical. She is a very charming young lady, a little headstrong in this matter, perhaps, but I do not think that is altogether unnatural. That might have come about if it had not been for the property, Mr. Prendergast, Mark said. But it cannot be now. If she and I had been engaged before all this happened, the case would have been different. But you see yourself that now my lips are sealed, for it would seem as if I had not cared for her until she turned out to be an heiress. You are a silly young couple, the lawyer said. I can only hope that as you grow older you will grow wiser. Well, you had better come up and have a talk with me about the assets your uncle mentions in his will. Then you don't know anything about them, sir? 
nothing at all, except as to the accumulations in his absence. He mentioned vaguely that he was a wealthy man. I thought that, as a matter of course, he had told his brother all about it. It is a curious business, sir, and I doubt if there will ever be anything besides the accumulations you speak of. Bless me, you don't say so. Well, well, I always thought that it was the most foolish business that I had ever heard of. However, you shall tell me all about it when you come up. I shall miss my coach unless I start. So saying, he shook Mark's hand, took his place in the gig, and was driven away. Millicent did not come downstairs again that day. She is thoroughly upset, Mrs. Cunningham said, and it would be best to let her have her own way for a while. I think the sooner I can get her away from here the better. The house is full of sad memories, and I myself feel shaken and in need of a change. I can quite understand her feeling and yours, Mrs. Cunningham. I do hope you will be able to disabuse her mind of the idea that I have any shadow of feeling of regret that she instead of I has the estate, and please try to work upon her on the ground of her father's wishes. I could see that her face changed when Mr. Prendergast put the matter in that light, which I do not think had occurred to her before. I am thinking of going up to town in a couple days. I was thinking of doing so tomorrow, but a day or so will make no difference. I propose that you both go with me, and then I will help you look for a house. Even if you don't get one at once, a week in London will be a change, and you can then, if you like, go somewhere for a time. Of course, Bath would be too gay at present, but you might go to Tunbridge Wells or... If she would like a seaside place, as she has never been near the sea since she was a baby, that would be the greatest change for her. You might go down for a month or two to Dover or Hastings. There is no occasion for you to settle down in London for a time. There is Weymouth, too, if you would like it better. I believe that that is a cheerful place without being too fashionable. I think that will be an excellent plan, Mrs. Cunningham said. If you like, I will drive you up to town, and the luggage can go by the carrier. It is much more pleasant than being shut up in a coach. Much more cheerful, of course. You will, of course, leave many of your things here, and the packing them up will give her something to do, and prevent her from brooding. I think that is an excellent idea, Mark. Late in the afternoon, Ramu came in in his usual silent manner. The man had said but little during the past few days, but it was evident that he was grieving deeply, and he looked years older than he had done before the fatal night. Of course, Ramu, you will stay with me for the present. I hardly know what I shall be doing for a time, but I am sure that until I settle down, Miss Conyers will be very glad to have you with her. No, Sahib. Ramu will return home to India. Ramu is getting old. He was thirty when he entered the service of the Colonel Sahib. He is fifty now. He will go home to end his days. He has saved enough to live in comfort, 
and with what the lawyer sahib told him your father has left him he will be a rich man among his own people but you will find things changed ramu since you left while here you know we all regard you as a friend rather than as a servant you are all very kind and good sahib ramu knows that he will meet no friends like those he has here but he longs for the bright sun and the blue sky of india and though it will well nigh break his heart to leave the young missy and you he feels that he must go all right ramu we shall all be very sorry to lose you but i understand your longing to go home and i know that you always feel our cold winters very trying therefore i will not oppose your wishes i shall be going up to town in two or three days and will arrange to pay your legacy at once and will inquire what vessels are sailing millicent was unfeignedly sorry when she heard of ramu's determination she was very fond of him for when as a child she first arrived at crowswood he had been her companion whenever the squire did not require his services and would accompany her about the garden and grounds listening to her prattle carrying her on his shoulder and obeying her behests no doubt he knew that she was the daughter of his former master and had to a certain extent transferred his allegiance from the sahib whose life he had several times saved to his little daughter still she agreed with mark that it was perhaps best that he should go she and mrs cunningham would find but little occasion for his services when established in london and his swarthy complexion and semi-eastern costume would attract attention and perhaps trouble when he went abroad the population being less accustomed to orientals then than at present but still less would they know what to do with him were they for a time to wander about mark said at once that so long as he himself was engaged in the task that he had set himself he could not take ramu with him and as for his staying alone in the house when it was only in charge of a caretaker it was not to be thought of although not inclined at the present time to agree with mark in anything millicent could not but acknowledge that it were best that Ramu should not be urged further to reconsider his determination. And she also fell in with his proposal that they should go up to London for a week, and then go down to Weymouth for a time, after which they would be guided by circumstances. Accordingly, two days later, Mark drove Millicent and Mrs. Cunningham up to London. A groom accompanied them on Mark's favorite horse, this was to be left in town for his use, and the groom was to drive the carriage back again. Comfortable rooms were obtained in a quiet inn for the ladies, while Mark put up at the bull, saying that he would come every day to take them out. "'Why did not Mark stay here, Mrs. Cunningham?' Millicent asked pettishly. "'I suppose he thought it better that he should not do so.' and I own that I think he is right. When we were, 
as we suppose, no relation to each other, Millicent said. We could be like brother and sister. Now that we find that we are cousins, we are going to be stiff and ceremonious. Not necessarily because you are cousins, Millicent. Before, you were his father's ward and under his father's care. Now you are a young lady on your own account. You must see that the position is changed greatly, and that what was quite right and proper before would not be at all right and proper now. Millicent shrugged her shoulders. Oh, if Mark wishes to be distant and stiff, he can certainly do so if he likes it. It makes no matter to me. That is not at all fair, Millicent, and very unlike yourself. Had not Mark suggested his going to another inn, I should have suggested it myself. Oh, yes, no doubt it is better, Millicent said carelessly. He has several friends in town, and, of course, we cannot expect him to be devoting himself to us. Mrs. Cunningham raised her eyebrows slightly, but made no answer. Millicent was seldom wayward, but at present things had gone very hardly with her, and her friend felt that it would be better to leave her entirely to herself until her humor changed. In the morning, when Mark came round, Millicent announced that she felt tired with the drive of the previous day and would prefer staying indoors. Mark looked a little surprised, more at the tone than at the substance of the words, for the manner in which she spoke showed that the excuse she had given was not her only reason for not going out. "'Of course, I shall stay at home, too,' Mrs. Cunningham said quietly, as he glanced toward her inquiringly. Millicent is unnerved and shaken, and perhaps it is just as well for her to have a day's complete rest. Very well, Mrs. Cunningham, then I will, as I cannot be of any use to you, set about my own business for the day. I have already been round to the lawyers, and have got a check for Ramu's legacy. He will be up this afternoon, and I will go round to Leadenhall Street and find out what ships are sailing and when they start. I will come in this evening for a chat. Millicent sat without speaking for some minutes after he had left the room. Mrs. Cunningham, whose hands were always busy, took some work out of a bag and set to work at it industriously. Presently the girl said, What business is this that Mark is going to occupy himself in? I do not know much about it, she replied but from a few words which he let drop i believe that he intends to devote himself to discovering and hunting down your uncle's murderer the listless expression faded out at once of millicent's face but surely mrs cunningham that will be very dangerous work no doubt it will be dangerous work but i don't think that is likely to hinder mark the man whoever he may be is of course a desperate character, and not likely to be captured without making a fierce struggle for it. Then he ought to put the matter in the hands of the proper authorities, Millicent said decidedly. Of course such men are dangerous. Very likely this man may have accomplices, and it is not against one only that Mark will have to fight. He has no right to risk his life in so desperate an adventure. 
Mrs. Cunningham smiled quietly over her work. The squire had often confided to her how glad he would be if these two should some day come together. In that case, the disclosure after marriage of the real facts of the case would cause no disturbance or difficulty. The estate would be theirs, and it would not matter which had brought it into the partnership. She had thoroughly agreed with him, but so far nothing had occurred to give any ground for the belief that their hopes would be fulfilled. Till within the last year, Millicent had been little more than a child. She had looked up to Mark as she might have done to a big brother, as something most admirable, as one whose dictum was law. During the last year, there had been some slight change, but more perhaps on Mark's part than on hers. He had consulted her wishes more, had asked instead of ordered, and had begun to treat her as if conscious that she was fast growing up into womanhood. Millicent herself scarcely seemed to have noticed this change. She was little more inclined to assert herself than before, but was ready to accompany him whenever he wished her to do so, or to see him go away without complaint when it so pleased him. But the last week had made a rapid change in their position. Millicent had sprung almost at a bound into a young woman. She had come to think and resolve for herself. She was becoming wayward and fanciful. She no longer deferred to Mark's opinion, but held her own, and was capable of being vexed at his decisions. At any rate, her relations with Mark had changed rapidly, and Mrs. Cunningham considered this little outburst of pettishness to be a good omen for her hopes and very much better than if they had continued on their old footing of affectionate cousins. Mark went back again to the lawyers, and had a long talk with Mr. Prendergast over the lost treasure. The old lawyer scoffed at the idea that there could be any danger associated with the bracelet. Men in India, I suppose, get fanciful, he said and imbibe some of the native superstitions. The soldier who got them from the man who stole them was stabbed. He might have been stabbed for a thousand reasons. But he had the bracelet on his mind. He was forever hiding it, digging it up, and fancying that someone was on his track, and he put down the attack as being made by someone connected with it. His manner impressed your uncle. He concealed the diamonds or sent them off somewhere instantly. He never had any further trouble about them, but like many men who have a craze, fancied that he was being perpetually watched and followed. The unfortunate result of all this is that these jewels and the money that he accumulated during his service at India seem to be lost. A more stupid affair I never heard of. Now, as to the clue... Any reasonable man would have given full instructions as to how the treasure was to be found, or if he did not do that, would at least, instead of carrying about an absurd coin and a scrap of paper with a name upon it, have written his instructions and put them in that ridiculous hiding place, or, more wisely still, would have instructed his solicitor fully on the subject. The amount of trouble given by men otherwise perfectly sane, by cranks and fancies, is astonishing. Here is something like a hundred thousand pounds, lost, 
owing to a superstitious whim. As to your chance of finding the treasure, I regard it as small indeed. The things are hidden in India, in some old tomb or other rubbishing place. Your uncle may have committed them to the charge of a native. He may have sent them to a banker at one of the great towns. He may have shipped them to England. He may have sent them to the North Pole for anything I know. How can one begin to search the universe? I thought, sir, that perhaps he might have sent them to some London bank or agent, with instructions to hold them until claimed by him, and that perhaps an inquiry among such houses would lead to the discovery that they hold certain property forwarded by him. Well, there is some sense in that suggestion, Prendergast grumbled, and I suppose the first thing to be done will be to carry that out. If you wish, we will do it for you. They would be more likely to give the information, if they possess it, to a well-known firm of solicitors like ourselves than to any private individual. Besides, if you were to go yourself, they would in each case want you to be identified before they would answer any question, whereas I should write a note to them in the firm's name, with our compliments, saying that we should be glad to know if the late Colonel Thorndyke of whose will we are the executors, had any account at their firm or has deposited any property in their hands. There are not above five or six banks doing business with India, and as many agents in a large way of business. And if he did such a foolish thing, he would be certain to do it with some houses of good standing, if, indeed, anything can be taken as certain in the case of a gentleman with such extraordinary fancies and plans as his. Thank you, Mr. Prendergast, Mark said, with a slight smile at the lawyer's irritability. That will be clearing the ground to a certain extent. If that does not succeed, I think I shall go to India myself, and shall there make similar inquiries at all the principal establishments in Calcutta and Madras. Should I fail there? It seems to me that the only remaining plan will be to find out from the military authorities the place where my uncle's regiment was encamped on that day, we have the date on which the jewels were given to him, and to institute a minute search of all the old ruins within such a distance as he might have reached within a day's ride. But you have no certainty that it was a ruin. He might have dug a hole under his tent and have buried the things there. He might have taken a shovel and buried them in a clump of bushes a quarter of a mile away. The thing is more and more ridiculous the more you look at it. I see it as very difficult, sir, but one might narrow it down somewhat if one discovered the spot. Probably there are still native officers in the regiment who were there at the time. If so, they might possibly know who was my uncle's servant at the time. The man may be a pensioner, and in that case I might discover his address through the military authorities, and I could find out from him whether my uncle often rode out at night, what were his habits, and possibly where the tent stood, and so on. Well, Mr. Prendergast said, if you like to undertake a wild goose chase of this sort, it is your business and not mine. 
but I consider the idea is the most utopian that I ever heard of. As to where the tent stood, is it likely that a man would remember to within a hundred yards where a tent stood fourteen years ago? Why, you might dig up acres and acres of ground and not be sure then that you had hit upon the right place. There is one other circumstance, Mr. Prendergast, Mark said quietly, that has to be taken into consideration and which renders it improbable that these diamonds were hidden anywhere by my uncle himself at that time. He certainly spoke of the whole of the treasure collectively. It is morally certain that he would not carry all those jewels that he had been collecting about with him, and certainly not his treasure in money. He must, therefore, have sent these diamonds to the person, whoever he may be, who had the keeping of his other jewels and of his money. This certainly points to a bank. There is some sensible conjecture, yes. There is something in that. He certainly could not have carried about him 50,000 pounds in gold and as much in jewelry. It would have been the act of a madman, and Colonel Thorndyke, although eccentric and cranky, was not mad. But, on the other hand, he may have carried about a banker's passbook, or what is equivalent to it, for the amount that had been deposited with a native banker or agent, together with a receipt for the box containing the jewels, and this he may have hidden with the diamonds. I don't think that he would have done that. There could have been no object for his putting the power of demanding his money and valuables out of his possession. Well, well, the lawyer said testily, it is of no use arguing now what he might or might not have done. A man who would have taken the trouble that he did to prevent his daughter knowing that she was an heiress, and fancied that he was followed about by black fellows, might do anything, reasonable or unreasonable, under the sun. At any rate, Mr. Thorndyke, I will carry out your instructions as to inquiries in London, and will duly inform you of the result. Beyond that, I must really decline to give any advice or opinion upon the matter, which is altogether beyond me. On leaving the lawyers, Mark went to Bow Street, and related to the chief the circumstances attending his father's murder. I have heard them from the man I sent down at your request, Mr. Thorndyke, and taking the attempt early in the evening and the subsequent murder, there can be no doubt that the affair was one of revenge and not of robbery. Had the second attempt stood alone, robbery might have been the object. The mere fact that nothing was stolen in no way alters the case. Men are often seized with a certain panic after committing a murder, and fly at once without attempting to carry out their original purpose. Your father, no doubt, fell heavily, and the man might well have feared that the fall would be heard. But the previous attempt precludes the supposition that robbery was at the bottom of it. It points to a case of revenge, and certainly goes a long way 
to support the theory that we talked over when I last saw you, that the highwayman, who endeavored to stop you on the road, whom you wounded, and who afterwards went down to Southampton, was the escaped convict, Bastow. Since that time, I have had a man making inquiries along the roads between Rygate and Kingston, but altogether without success. I should be glad to follow up any other line that you might suggest, and that might offer any reasonable possibility of success. But I must own that at present we are entirely off the scent. I am thinking of devoting myself entirely to the quest. I have no occupation at present. I have an income amply sufficient for my wants and for all expenses that I may incur, and I intend to devote, if necessary, some years of my life to hunting this man down. As your men have searched without success in the country, I think for the present my best plan will be to devote myself to learning something of the ways and haunts of the criminal classes of London. And it is with that object that I have come to you now. I should like, for some time, at any rate, to enter the detective force as an enrolled member. I should, of course, require no pay, and should be prepared to obey all orders and to do any work required as any other member of the Corps would do. I am strong, active, and I have, I hope, a fair share of intelligence. I should not mind risking my life in carrying out any duty that you might assign to me. I presume that I need not always be on duty, and could, when not required, employ my time as I liked, and keep up my acquaintances in town. Should it be otherwise, however, I am perfectly ready to submit myself in all respects to your rule. I have a first-rate horse, and should be available for country duty wherever you might think it fit to send me. I should not desire any distinction to be made between me and the paid officers. Your proposal is an altogether novel one, Mr. Thorndyke, but it is worthy of consideration. I have no doubt that you would make a very useful officer. The work is certainly interesting, though not without serious hazards. However, I will think the matter over, and if you will call in tomorrow, you shall have my answer. We are always glad to have a new hand in the force, for the faces of our men are so well known among the criminal class that they are liable to be detected even under the cleverest disguises. There is work, too, upon which it is absolutely necessary that a gentleman should be employed, and in the event of your joining us, I should wish you to keep the matter strictly from all your acquaintances, and it would certainly be advantageous that you should, when disengaged, continue to mix with your friends, and to mingle in society of all kinds as freely as possible. There is crime among the upper classes as well as among the lower, though of a different type, and as Mr. Thorndyke of Crowswood you would have far better opportunities of investigating some of these cases than any of my men would have, 
you would not object to take up these cases? Not at all, sir. That is, if it could be arranged that I should not do the actual work of making an arrest, or have to appear in court as a witness. That could be managed, the chief said. When you have got to a certain point, the matter of the final arrest could always be handed over to someone else. But as a rule, we keep our officers in the background as much as possible, because at every trial the court is half full of men of the criminal class, and the faces of our men would soon be known to every one of them. Well, if you will call about ten o'clock tomorrow, you shall have my answer. But I should advise you to think the matter well over before you see me again. The responsibilities, as well as the dangers, are great. And indeed, in some of the work, you would literally have to carry your life in your hand. And I can assure you that the task you would undertake is by no means a light one. End of chapter 10 Recording by Nick Bulka, New Boston, New Hampshire.